All right, so you need to know that a number of months have passed between where we were last week in John chapter five and where we are today in John chapter six. And, and this, these, these months between chapters five and six are very, very fruitful. Fruitful ministry by the Lord, which by the way, that fruitful ministry was recorded by what's known as the synoptic gospels. If you're new to Christianity, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word synoptic means together sight. In other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke present the life of Jesus in a very similar way. John presents the life of Jesus in a different way, not a contradictory way. There's no contradictions in the Bible. John just has a different emphasis. And so what I'm gonna do um, as we present today the famous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, what I'm gonna do often today is I'm gonna look back to Matthew and Mark and Luke's record of our story so we can get a more complete picture of what occurred. And so right now, if you're looking at John chapter six, verse one, just say amen, so I know you're there. Feel free to pull the Bible up on your smartphone. All right, so John chapter six, verse one. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. All right, so as we look at our map today, we see <clears throat> the Sea of Galilee right there in the center of your screen. Uh, basically a very large freshwater lake, 13 miles long, eight miles wide. So 13 miles from top to bottom, um, eight miles across from east to west. The reason John, in verse one, called the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias is because around A.D. 18, so just a decade or so before the Lord's public ministry, a politician named Herod Antipas decided that he wanted to found a city um, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and not only did he want to found the city, he wanted to name the city after the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. And so A.D. 18, Herod Antipas um, begins this city, establishes this city, he calls it Tiberius. So if you see Tiberius on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, just say amen so I know you're looking on the map with me. All right, and so uh, we see Tiberius there on the uh, Sea of Galilee, and so what happened was after AD 18, because the city was called Tiberias, a lot of people just started calling the whole lake the Sea of Tiberias. Now, you also need to know that at this point in our story, Jesus and his disciples have just come from a very busy season of ministry, and quite frankly, they needed some rest. Mark wrote that around this time, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, come away by yourself to a desolate place and, what's the next word there? Rest a while. How many of you guys know that every once in a while we need some rest, right? Stress and release, stress and release. That's healthy. Christianity is not a sprint. Christianity is a marathon. And if you're gonna make it through the marathon, you gotta have those seasons of rest. And Jesus knew this. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while 
for many were coming and going, and they, that's Jesus and the disciples, had no leisure even to eat. That's what you call busy. They didn't have time to get lunch or, or, or dinner or breakfast because there's so much ministry going on. And so it says that they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. All right, so after ministering to so many people, they don't even have time to eat. They got in a boat and they just sailed away. Does that sound appealing to anybody, by the way? Yeah. Now, we'll go to our map again so you can kind of track where Jesus went. And so they boarded a boat in Capernaum. Capernaum's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and that town was Jesus' ministry headquarters. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus recently raised the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. His, he raised his 12-year-old daughter from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Jesus, raises her from the dead in the city of Capernaum. If you're looking at Capernaum, say Amen. Okay, and so after a very busy season of ministry, too much to describe right now, Jesus and his disciples, they get in the boat and they head to Bethsaida. Bethsaida's on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, just east of the Jordan River. If you see Bethsaida, please say amen. Okay, so here's what happens. They get in the boat and um, they leave Capernaum and according to Luke 9.10, they go to Bethsaida and Mark tells us that at this time, a lot of people saw Jesus and the disciples in the boat and they recognized them and they see what direction they're going. And so all these crowds of people, Mark tells us, literally started to run around the top of the Sea of Galilee in order to get to Bethsaida before Jesus arrived there. I mean, they're all like thousands of people. They're running. It's like a 5K for Jesus. And they get to Bethsaida, and the Lord pulls up in the boat. He sees all these people, and what does he do? He begins to minister to them. At some point, he found a secluded spot nearby in the area that we know today as the Golan Heights. And so Jesus took his disciples somewhere in that beautiful mountain range, right outside of Bethsaida. They needed some R&R. They needed a mini vacation. They needed to just get away for a while. Now we pick it up in verse three of chapter six. It says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. All right, so it's time to rest and recharge and what a beautiful season for this mini vacation. John tells us that it's close to Passover. And so it's beautiful weather. We know, of course, Passover, that's the springtime. And so that would have been early April on that particular year. They went to just chill out. They went to relax. And now it says, please look at verse five. He's sitting up there on the mountain with his disciples. And Jesus, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd, oh, they found him. <laughs> a large crowd was coming toward him. The Lord said to his disciples, here they come. Let's get out of here. Look, 
there's a cave. Let's all go hide before they come. Is that what Jesus said? Okay, so I'll get back to what he really said here in just a moment, but first what I wanna do is I wanna fill in some gaps, again, from the synoptic gospel so we can get the whole picture. All right, so let's, let's, let's regroup. Jesus, his disciples, busy time of ministry, jump in a boat, leave Capernaum, go around the north side of the lake, they land in Bethsaida, lots of people are there, he loves on them, ministers to them at some point in the day. Him and his disciples go up into the Golan Heights, right outside of Bethsaida. They're taking it easy, they're sitting, they're relaxing. Jesus looks up, here comes the crowd. Now, how large is this crowd? Matthew's gospel says there's 5,000 men, not including women and children. So if you include the women and children, ladies and gentlemen, conservatively estimating there's well over 10,000 people coming at Jesus right now. That's a very conservative number. Some people say 15,000. I read one commentator who thinks there's 20,000. Okay, so we'll be conservative this morning. 10,000 plus people coming up the mountain there in the Golan Heights toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Mark tells us at this time that when he went ashore and saw a great crowd it says that he had, please shout out the underlined word. Yes. Don't you love that about Jesus? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to, please shout it out, them many things. Now obviously I wanted to highlight two words from that verse uh, I wanted to highlight compassion, and I wanted to highlight teach. All right, so put yourself in the sandals of one of those disciples, see what's going on, right? Jesus sees thousands of men, women, teenagers, boys and girls coming up the mountain at him, and instead of avoiding them, instead of saying, can you please just give me a break? Instead of saying, hey, it's my time off, you can't bother me now. No, what did Jesus do? Jesus looked out at them and had compassion Passion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you guys know that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ? How many of you guys know that Jesus loves the church? How many of you guys know that the church was not man's idea, the church was Christ's idea? That Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is in, in the big C church. He's into the big C church, which is born again Christians all around the world, and he's also in local little C churches all around the world. He loves his church, and Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. And in these local churches, he has under shepherds. And he looks out of this crowd, and his heart goes out because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Here's what I need to tell you this morning, that if you're a Christian, you need a shepherd. You need the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously, but you also need 
under shepherds in your life as well. That's why it's God's will for there to be local churches all over the world. That's what his commission was, to go and make disciples of all the nations. And what did they do in Acts? They went and they planted churches, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches all around the Roman Empire. Why? Because sheep needs shepherds to teach them. You need to get into a local church. If this is not your local church, pray and ask God, what local church do you want me to be in? And then get in there and get involved and serve the Lord until your dying breath. That's what God wants you to do. Now, what does a shepherd do for the sheep? He feeds them. He feeds them, and that's exactly what Jesus did here. It says, last line, he began to, shout out the word, them many things. Compassion equals teaching. This is the way I show my love for you guys. I study, 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 study all week, (laughs) and I share the word of God with you guys. But you need to know also that Matthew and Luke said that Jesus healed the sick among them. Okay, so he taught them. That means that he met their spiritual needs. And then he healed the sick among them. That means that he met their physical needs. And that's how Jesus showed compassion for these people. The synoptic gospels also say that after all this ministry, it was getting late, the sun's going down, and the disciples, well, they wanted to send the crowds away. Matthew records that fact for us. The disciples went to Jesus and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. And I want you guys, please read the underlined part there. Go ahead. Lord, make them go away. (laughs) To go into the villages and buy food for themselves. All right, picture the scene. Beautiful, Golan Heights, somewhere up there in those mountains. The sun is setting, the temperature is dropping, kids are getting restless. Everybody's stomachs are growling. Everybody's hungry. And the disciples look at Jesus and they said, send the crowds away, Lord, to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And it was most likely then that Jesus asked Philip in the second half of verse five. All right, so right now look at John 6, 5b. Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Okay, so why in the world would Jesus ask Philip this question? Could it be that we learned back in John chapter one, verse 44, it's because Philip was from Bethsaida and he knew that area? Could it be that maybe Jesus was like, hey, Phil, you grew up around here. Do you know of any places where we can get food for all these people? I mean, are there any red lobsters around? Long John Silvers, because I need a lot of fish and chips, right, to take care of these people. Is that why Jesus asked Philip from Bethsaida the question? Of course not. The answer to why he asked Philip this question is found in verse six. And verse six is a key verse for our study today. And so right now, if you're looking at John 6, 6, amen here. 
All right, he said this to, shout out the next two words. There it is. Everybody look at me. Did you know Jesus is gonna test you? He's gonna test you and 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 me. He's gonna test us and test us and test. He's gonna test us for the rest of our lives. He has the right, he's Lord, he's Savior. He's creator, he's king. We're not the Lord of our lives. We don't call the shots. We didn't knit ourselves together in our mother's womb. Psalm 139 says that God knit us together in our mother's wombs. He's the boss. And if he wants to test us, he can test us. And so John 6, 6, Jesus asked Philip this question. It said this, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew that in a few minutes, he's gonna perform an amazing miracle. He's gonna take five barley loaves and two fish and miraculously multiply that to feed 10,000 plus people. He knew he was gonna do that. So why in the world did he ask Philip, hey Philip, where should we go to buy food? Here's why, title the message, it was a test of faith. And that's what I wanna to talk to you guys about this morning, about when we're tested by the Lord, when our faith is tested. The synoptic gospels say that when the disciples went to Jesus and said, just send the crowds away, Jesus said something shocking to them. Check out what he said here. He said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. <laughs> what? Are you guys in the story? Are you there in your mind? 10,000 plus people. Lord, send them all away. You give them something to eat. And they're thinking, what, are you kidding me? And so what do they do? They try to figure it out for themselves. They pull out a calculator, so to speak. They start counting heads, right? Man, it's gonna take 200 denarii to feed all these people. Mark recorded that for us. They said to Jesus, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And it was most likely then that Philip said what he said in verse seven. Okay, so look at John 6, seven. Philip answered him, uh, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them even to get a little. And so this is funny to me because here's what I know as I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over and over. And that's what I was doing um, a lot this week as I was going from Matthew uh, 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6, putting all these pieces together. But here's what I know. The, the disciples, they argued a lot. They bantered back and forth a lot. And so they're, they're, they're like counting heads and, oh, shall we go, Lord, and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Philip says to Jesus, apparently wanting to show the disciples were wrong and he was right, he says in verse seven, um, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, 200 denarii, how much money is that? Well, we know a denarius, a denarius was a Roman coin that was worth a day's wage for the common laborer. Okay, so if you worked a six-day work week, 
from sunup to sundown, um, they would flip you one of those. There's your wage for the day. Here's a denarius. 200 denarii would have been if you work a, I'm sorry, if you work one day, they flip you one of these coins, right? There's your denarius. If you work a six-day week, 200 denarii equals eight months' wages. Okay, so that's one day's wage. 200 of those things is eight months of wages. So what is Philip basically saying to the Lord? Lord, eight months of wages won't even be enough to give everybody here even a little bit of food. And so I think you guys are catching the, the, the drift here. I think you guys are understanding that Philip and the disciples, listen, listen, they're not responding the way the Lord wants them to respond. How did they respond? First of all, if you're taking notes, the disciples tried to avoid the problem. Matthew said, they said to Jesus, send the crowds away. Let them go get food for themselves. Second of all, the disciples tried to figure out the problem on their own. Mark told us, they said to Jesus, 200 denarii, should we go and spend that much money? Um, go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and then come back and feed them. And Philip's like, that's not enough, guys, right? They're trying to figure it out on their own. And then third of all, they focused on the problem. You say, how do you know that? Because of the way they're responding to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Here's the thing, why in the world does Jesus, who is sovereign, put Philip and the disciples in the situation that they're in right now? Here's why. He wanted to test their faith. And through this test, what he's gonna do is he's gonna teach them some very, very valuable lessons, and we're gonna learn those lessons right now. I hope you're taking notes. This is gonna help you. In light of our story, what should we as Christians do? We should do just the opposite of what the disciples did in our story. And so as Christians, number one, here's, here's what we need to do. We need to face our problems instead of avoiding them. See, we live in the United States of America, 21st century. Do you guys know how good we have it compared to the B billions of people who've lived throughout history all around the world? We got it made in the shade. We're all about comfort. We're all about pleasure. We're all about entertainment, right? Even today, you know, most of the world living in poverty. And, 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 and we're used to convenience in America. We're used to the lifestyle, right, that we're living. And so what happens is when we're faced with a problem, here's what we often do. Man, I don't want to deal with that. That's making me uncomfortable. And here's what we often do. We go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, send the crowds away, right? Lord, make this problem go away. I don't want to deal with it. If you're listening right now, say amen. amen. Here's a very important question. What if the Lord wants you to deal with that problem? What if he wants you to be uncomfortable? Look at what James says about problems and trials in life. He says, count it all what? 
joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, it's a test. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I believe the vast majority of problems and trials that come into our lives, the Lord doesn't want us to avoid them. He wants us to face them. I'm not saying that he wants you to be a bull in a china shop and just go in there immediately and just blow everybody out of the water. I'm not saying that at all. Sometimes there's wisdom in sleeping on it. Sometimes there's wisdom in praying for a day or two or three before you face the problem. But I believe for the vast majority of problems and trials in our lives, God wants us to face them. God says through James, I want you to count it all joy when you face those various trials. Why? Here's why. Because God is sovereign and he's using the problems and the trials in your life to test your faith and my faith too. And if we respond the right way to God's problem or trial that he's allowing to come into our lives, then what he's going to be doing is he's going to be producing steadfastness in our lives. He's going to be developing us spiritually. He's going to be confusing that hardship, that difficulty, that problem to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ to make us perfect and complete. He wants to make you perfect and complete. And I'm not talking about sinlessness here. John MacArthur clears that up concerning the Greek word. Perfect is from teleos, which does not connote moral or spiritual perfection or sinlessness. How many of you guys know that none of us are going to be perfect in that sense of the word until the other side of the grave? Okay? So what's he saying? But rather, that word perfect refers to that which is, can you guys say the last two words? Fully developed. And so God may want you this week, this month, this year to face that problem, that trial, that issue Why? Because he's going to use it sovereignly in your life in order to fully develop you spiritually. And that's why he says you can count it all joy. Not that you're faced with the problem and you're like, woohoo, I love this problem. No, that's not the idea. I love the end result of the problem, which is me being more like Jesus. And so face it. Face the problem. Face the issue. Don't run away. Don't avoid it. In light of our story, what should we do as Christians? The opposite of what the disciples did. That means let's look to Jesus first before trying to figure it out by ourselves. Instead of just going to Jesus and asking him, Lord, what do you want to do? 10,000 plus people, what do you want to do? They didn't ask him that. (laughs) Instead of going and asking Jesus that, what did they do? They tried to figure it out on their own. Should we buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Now, before we, because it's easy to pick on the disciples, right? So before we look down on the disciples, here's what we got to admit. We all do the same thing, myself included. When we're faced with a problem, when we're faced with an issue, the first thing we do is we go into I got to fix it mode. We go into, I gotta figure this out mode on our own. If it's a financial problem, we pull out the calculator. Okay, so if I take out this loan, 
or if I call my rich Aunt Ethel, <laughs> or if I cut back on my giving, then I can really make it through this issue. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here's an idea. Instead of first trying to figure it out on your own, why don't you first get on your knees and go to Jesus and see what he wants you to do. Find out what he, listen, listen, listen. He's the boss, not you and not me. The sooner you learn that lesson, the better it's gonna be for you. Submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not my will, your will be done. And did you guys know, by the way, he's a pretty good provider. He's promised when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. What is the context in the Sermon on the Mount of all these things? It's the necessities of life. The Lord has promised if you put Jesus Christ and his, his agenda, the Christ and his kingdom, if you put that first, he's promised to take care of not your greeds, your needs. He's promised it. And he's a great provider. And whatever problem we face in life, financial or whatever, man, let's just look to Jesus first. Let's be a church looks to Jesus first. Let's be a school across the street looks to Jesus first. Let's be individuals who look to Jesus first. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, trust in yourself with all your heart. Is that what it says? No, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Lord, you have the answers to life's problem. What do you want me to do in this situation? And he's gonna direct your paths. All right, so in light of our story, what should we as Christians do? We should do just the opposite of what the disciples did and that is, we should focus on the provider instead of the problem. I love this point. Focus on the provider, not the problem. When the disciples looked out and saw 10,000 plus people, that's a big problem. And looking at that impossible situation, here's what they did. They focused on that instead of Jesus. Now what if they would have had a different response? What if they would have went to the Lord and they would have said, Lord, man, we've been hanging out with you for a long time now. We've seen you do what you do. In fact, some of us, we were there when we went over to that wedding in Cana and they were ready to serve water. I mean, how embarrassing is that? And what did you do? You turned the water into wine. You took care of that impossible situation and we believe you could take care of this impossible situation as well. Man. Hey, listen to me. If they would have went and said that to Jesus, he would have started doing backflips. He would have been so excited. He'd be like, yeah, they're finally getting it. They get an A on their test of faith. But they didn't respond that way. They focused on the problem, the problem, the problem, the problem. Ah. And they got a big, fat F. At least that day. How many of you guys are glad God gives us second chances? Right? 
And so praise God for second chances. When the Lord called me and Stacy to plant this church 18 years ago in 2004, I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Jupiter. I was the care pastor there. Loved my job, loved my boss. We had a beautiful home in Jupiter Farms on over an acre. Had great friends, secure job. Life was amazing. And God called my wife and I to plant a church in Port St. Lucie. And we were excited. And there's seven, there were seven families that were living in Port St. Lucie and they were driving all the way down to Calvary Jupiter to go to church. And so I did the right thing. I went to my pastor uh, who's still a great friend in my life and I asked his permission to call the seven families who are driving from Port St. Lucie down to Jupiter uh, because I wanted to plant a church here in Port St. Lucie and uh, would he give me permission to let them know that? He's like, absolutely, 100%. I got on the phone, called them up, told them about our first service. We had our first service in the home of uh, Pastor Lee and Julie Holly. Pastor Lee is your executive pastor. They're still here to this day, 18 plus years later. It's amazing. So, we have our first service. I'm kind of embarrassed. We put a big pulpit in the middle of Lee's living room. I should have just sat in a circle and talked to everybody, but I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher at heart. You guys, you guys know that. Uh, but anyway, we had our first service. It was wonderful. But here's what I want you guys to think about for a moment. My wife and I and our three daughters, when we came um, up here, drove up here to start this church, we had no guarantee that those seven families were gonna keep coming to our church. It wasn't like we could go to them with a contract and say, okay, here's what we want you to do. The Wiggins will move up to Port St. Lucie if you sign right here and you promise to be a faithful member. Why? Because it doesn't work that way. Stacy and I could have made a choice in those days to focus on the negative, to focus on the problem or the potential problem. We could have focused on the fact that we're leaving a secure job, a great boss, and great friends. We could have focused on the fact that there's just a handful of people up here in Port St. Lucie who may or may not keep coming. We could have focused on the fact that, man, what if they don't like us after they get to know us for a while? What if they don't give regularly? What if they're mean? We didn't know. We had no idea. But we didn't care. I don't even think those thoughts even crossed our minds. Why? Because we had learned by that point in our Christian life that where God guides, God provides. Amen. He always takes care of us when we're walking in his will. So we loaded up the truck and we moved to Beverly. We came up here uh, to Port St. Lucie. And man, it's absolutely amazing what God has done, guess what happened? We took the step of faith and he came through. He took a handful of families and he multiplied them to hundreds of families who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. It's an amazing thing. Now here's what you need to know. It's better now 
than it ever was then. Don't tell Pastor Dan that. <laughs> but it is, why? Because we're walking in God's will. Amen. And the most joy is when you walk in God's will. Yes. And here's what you need to know. I have failed plenty of tests of faith in my life. I'm like you guys, I'm a human being. And there's times when God gave me a test of faith and I flat out got a big fat F. But I am so glad by the grace and power and enablement of the Holy Spirit, God helped me pass the test to take a step of faith and come up here and my wife and I to plant this church. So glad that he helped me do that. I'm so glad that he showed up. I'm so glad that he miraculously multiplied things. And listen, he gets all the praise because he did it and he's still doing it. It's not by our might nor by our power. It's by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's how churches are built. That's how, listen to me, that's how churches are built, church planners. If you're out there in the crowd or you're watching right now, not by our might, nor by our power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Why, because at the end of the day, people say, well, listen, listen, I drove a forklift at Costco. I worked at Costco for 12 years. And when people hear my story and they see what God has done, here's what, what happens, God gets the glory. I'm, I'm just like a vessel being used by him. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. That's where the glory goes, that's where the praise goes. And man, he's provided an amazing team of staff here at the church, of staff across the street at the school, of amazing ministry partners. And it's absolutely incredible what the Lord has done and is continuing to do. But here's what, what I always say, I think he's just getting started. So ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, listen to me. How many of you would love us in the future if the Lord tarries to reach hundreds and hundreds more families so that marriages can be strengthened, so kids can grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, so that people can genuinely, through the gospel of grace, get absolutely born again, and then after that, get baptized, and then become lifelong followers of Jesus Christ within the context of a local church? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Okay, so here's the deal. If that's gonna happen here in the church, if that's gonna continue to happen at the school as the school grows, we have got to focus on the provider, not the problem. And God has created you in his image and God has created you for a specific purpose. There's something he wants you to do, but you got to stop focusing on the problem. You gotta stop giving in to your fear. You gotta focus on the provider. You gotta develop a relationship with him and then stand back because man, he's gonna do an amazing thing that's gonna blow you away. Let's find out what he did in our story. Look at verse eight. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves. By the way, barley was the food for animals and poor people. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? <laughs> All right, can you see this little kid? Five loaves, little, not, not like we think, they're, they're flat disc wafers, five barley loaves and two fish. That's not enough. 
That's a little bit, right? But here's what I know. Little is much when God is in it. He can multiply miraculously as he wishes. And so please look now at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And so this is the only miracle of Jesus that all four gospel writers record. It's the only one right here. And what an amazing miracle it was. Jesus, can you see him lifting up that little wafer? <laughs> lifting up, thanking the Lord for his provision. And what does he do? He gives the bread and he gives the fish to his disciples. And they're, they're starting to distribute it to the crowd. And they're astonished, they're amazed, why? Because every time they come back, there's more bread and there's more fish. And I love to try to get down in there in the story, right? And I can see these guys, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, right? And they're running back and forth. There's 10,000 plus people. And they keep coming and they're like sweating and they're laughing and they're like, there's more, there's more, there's more. That's our Jesus. Absolutely powerful beyond imagination. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, I mean, it's like Thanksgiving day here. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. That's why your mama's always saying, eat all your food. They're starving children over in Africa, right? Verse 13, so they gathered them up and they filled how many baskets? 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And so the meal's done, they fill up 12 baskets. You guys know why they filled up 12 baskets because there's how many apostles? 12, you see, here's the thing. They're serving the Lord. And they're getting blessed by God's grace. Again, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, the necessities of life, will be added unto you, Matthew 6, It's a promise of God that we can stand on. He takes care of us. Yeah.